our series this morning then on Elijah. So I guess that many of you have probably seen um, the film called The Darkest Hour. Um, It stars Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. And the title of the film, Darkest Hour, comes from the expression that is attributed to Churchill describing the early days of the Second World War after France had succumbed to Nazi Germany. And it's a, it's a really, really good watch. I think actually Gary Oldman possibly got some award for it, um, maybe an Oscar or whatever, but it's a great watch. But I have pilfered the title for this morning's talk, Darkest Hour, because we're going to um, be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. And what we'll be reading may be thought of as Elijah's darkest hour, a period of depression and lament for the prophet of God. So if you want to read along, um, it's uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And we are going to... Where's the light fully on? Could somebody put the lights on maybe at the back there, please? Um, because my eyesight is definitely deteriorating. Um, chapter 19, and thank you, um, the first 19 verses, actually. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Japhat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Japhat. He was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And we'll end our reading at that point. So let's begin then with a little background. If you remember, last time we uh, were considering Elijah, we left off with Elijah on a great high. On Mount Carmel, Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal. Yahweh had revealed himself to be the true God. And Baal had been exposed as a lifeless and impotent idol. The prophets of Baal had suffered the fate of false prophets. They had been slaughtered en masse. And as the rain clouds burst to put an end to Israel's three and a half year drought, Elijah had sped ahead of King Ahab's chariot to meet the king at his summer palace in Jezreel. No doubt Elijah was hopeful that this was going to be a decisive turning point 
in the nation's history. The experiment with Baalism would come to an end. Ahab would echo the response of his people who had said in the light of what had happened on Mount Carmel had said, Yahweh is God. Queen Jezebel would have to face the facts and admit defeat. All that preparation time for Elijah at the the ravine at Kerith, the time with the widow at Zarephath, it had all been worth it. Elijah was now vindicated and Israel was now set back on the worship of Yahweh. Well, if that was Elijah's expectation, then we can understand his severe disappointment. For as we have just read, things turned out very differently. So what we're going to do is look at the passage that we've read. We're going to look at it in four sections and then I'll tease out some lessons. The first section then is from verse 1 to the first part of verse 5. Elijah's fleeing from Jezebel. When King Ahab reports back to his, well we can't say really his better half in this instance, his worse half, Queen Jezebel, it's interesting that the king attributes what he has just witnessed on Mount Carmel, he attributes it to Elijah, not to Yahweh. Again, reflecting the king's lack of appreciation of the true God. Anyhow, Jezebel is singularly unrepentant. And indeed, Jezebel is hell-bent on revenge. Elijah is going to suffer the same fate as her beloved prophets. As Meyer puts it, Jezebel is like a tigress robbed of her young. Elijah's life is now in serious jeopardy, and he knows it. According to the NIV, Elijah was afraid and runs for his life. Indeed, accompanied by his servant, he flees first of all to Judah's southernmost border, to Beersheba, some 180 miles away. And then alone, he travels a further day's journey into the desert where he plonks himself down by a broom or a juniper tree. Overtaken with despondency, Elijah prays that his life might be forfeit and he collapses into a deep sleep. Now, Elijah has traditionally received a very bad press for his actions and his attitude here. The mighty man of God has come crashing down. His darkest hour is a time of devastating defeat. Elijah has scarpered in the face of a woman's threat when he should have stood his ground, confident that the Lord would protect him. And he has been overtaken by despondency 
to the point where he has lost perspective and has become something of a quivering wreck. Joel Beakey is one of the many commentators who are strongly critical of Elijah at this point in his life. Beakey remarks that Elijah has gone AWOL in God's army. And Charles Swindle says that if chapter 18 of 1 Kings is characterised by Elijah's faith, then chapter 19 is characterised by Elijah's fear. But are we in danger of perhaps being too critical of Elijah? And certainly this is the view adopted by Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on 1 Kings. Davis points out that where the NIV translates verse 3 as Elijah was afraid, it can be interpreted simply as Elijah saw. And Davis also points out the illogicality of Elijah supposedly running for his life only then, a short time later, to want his life to be taken from him. Davis suggests that Elijah was determined that should he die, he would die well away from Jezebel, so that it would not appear as if Jezebel was victorious. Also, we must allow for the tremendous sense of letdown that Elijah experienced when the royal couple reacted as they did to Yahweh's victory on Carmel. Elijah was zealous for the Lord's name above all else, and it grieved him sorely that Ahab and Jezebel reacted as they did, unrepentant for their apostasy. And further, Elijah would no doubt have been suffering from physical exhaustion as a result of his long journeys. So can we not maybe cut Elijah a bit of slack for not thinking quite straight? So whilst, yes, Elijah, this was Elijah's darkest hour, but it was not that he had suddenly transmuted into some sort of coward. It's likely that he was suffering from a severe reality check as he literally and metaphorically came off a mountaintop experience, plus extreme burnout from his exploits and his rapid journeying, and he needed some time to recuperate. Second section then, verses 5b to the first part of 9, Elijah's sustaining by the angel. Elijah's 40 winks are interrupted by a visitor, and not just any visitor, but an angel of the Lord. And some speculate that this may even have been a theophany, you know, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself. The angel touched him, and apparently the Hebrew suggests more of a gentle touch than a stern rebuke. And the angel has brought refreshments, a cake of baked bread 
and a jar of water, or apparently a tin of Red Bull in Hebrew. Elijah scoffs his miracle meal and then lays down to sleep again, only for the angel to return with seconds. For Elijah will need sustenance for his onward journey. Elijah is not going to die under the juniper tree. Rather, he's going to embark upon another 180-mile trek to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name, by the way, for Mount Sinai, the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments, and also the place where Moses um, you know, had that experience where he saw the, the sort of the back of the Lord. And Elijah was going to have a similar experience. When he finally arrives after 40 days and 40 nights, and probably the 40 there does carry some sort of symbolic significance. It's been pointed out that it's far, far too long, 40 days, to get the, to travel the 180 miles. So there's probably some sort of significance in it, but I don't know what it is. Um, but he, when, he, when he gets to Horeb, he enters a cave and beds down for the night. But once again, his beauty sleep is going to be arrested. And that takes us to our third section, the end of verse 9 to 14, Elijah's encountering the Lord. The Lord inquires of Elijah, what are you doing here? Again, most of the commentators that I read detect a note of rebuke. But Elijah's 21st century PR man, Dale Ralph Davis, he is not convinced that there is much by way of any rebuke or censure here. Elijah lays bare his soul. His life of zealous service for the Lord appears to have been in vain. The Israelites have turned their back on the Mosaic Covenant. The altars to the worship of Yahweh are in ruins. The true prophets of God have been killed. He's the only one left. And now he's under Jezebel's death threat. And no doubt there is some exaggeration in Elijah's woe is me. But Elijah does feel alone. You know, sort of last man standing. The Lord then commands Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain and he'll pass by. A powerful wind then tears into the mountain, shattering the rocks, followed by an earthquake, followed by fire. But it's only when Elijah hears a gentle whisper that the prophet Moses-like covers his face with his mantle and stands at the foot of the cave. A repeat Q&A session follows between the Lord and Elijah. At one level, it seems as if nothing has changed. But in reality, Elijah has been readied for hearing the Lord's revelation of what he's going to do about the situation in Israel and how this is going to involve a new role for Elijah. And that brings us to our last section, verses 15 to 19, Elijah's recommissioning by Yahweh. Yahweh instructs Elijah to retrace his steps 
and go to the desert of Damascus, whereupon he's going to make a series of appointments, or more accurately, anointments. He's going to anoint Hazael, king over Aram, Jehu, king over Israel, which of course implies that King Ahab's number is up, and Elisha is going to be anointed as Elijah's own successor. There's obviously going to be a bit of a bloodbath in Israel, but apart from having the role of anointing his own successor, someone whom he is going to train up for the role and who will become a source of special companionship to him, the Lord declares that he has reserved 7,000 others who have not or will not succumb to Baal worship. The number 7,000 may well again be symbolic. It may even be an approximation. But the reality is that Elijah is far from being the only one in Israel who will continue the worship of Yahweh. And verse 19 tells us that Elijah is obedient to his recommissioning. Off he goes and subsequently he anoints Elisha. No longer despondent, no longer begging to die, but restored and positioned to a fresh role in the history of Israel. So what are the lessons for ourselves that today? What are the lessons that we can take from this episode, from Elijah's darkest hour? Well, I have three. I only got through two last time. I'm going to make three this time. Number one, the frailty of man. One of the convincing proofs of the authenticity of our Bible is that it doesn't attempt to sugarcoat its main characters. Rather, they're all presented warts and all. Thus, we read of Noah's drunkenness, of David's adultery, of Jonah's disobedience. We read of how Abraham the great architect of faith, nevertheless took matters into his own hands to have a son with Hagar. Solomon, the man who at one time was the very epitome of wisdom, was waylaid by his love of foreign women. Peter, one of the Lord's innermost circle of disciples, nevertheless curses him with oaths in an act of pure cowardice. And here we have the prophet Elijah, who for the most part in our series to date has appeared bold and fearless. Here he is, or sorry, taking on and defeating the prophets of Baal and Carmel, is now found fleeing, downcast, languishing in self-pity, even arguably suicidal. But no wonder... For man is a finite and fallen creature. All men are subject to weakness and to sin. And thus the Apostle James writes of Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. Or as the King James Version renders it, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Elijah was prone to stumbling and to failure. 
You see, there has only ever been one man who has never stumbled, who never once failed to do God's will. The God-man, Jesus Christ. All others, even the great heroes of the Bible, were imperfect and in need of the Lord's forgiveness for their sin and failure. And that ought to encourage us in our stumbling walk with the Lord. We're in good company when we contemplate the likes of Elijah. So even if we go with Dale Ralph Davis's more optimistic view about Elijah and not the others, the fact is, you know, Elijah was a man who had his day of failure too. Second lesson, the Lord speaks in a quiet voice. I did rather glance over what we're told about the Lord not being in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but in a gentle whisper. And it is, I think, easy to misunderstand this because the Lord was behind the wind. He was behind the earthquake. He was behind the fire. After all, it was the Lord who brought fire down to consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. But the point is that here he used a gentle whisper to speak to Elijah. Not on this occasion did he speak to Elijah's heart through dramatic displays of power, but rather through what Dick Lucas calls a quiet breath. And the fact is, this is how the Lord usually interacts with his people. Not by spectacular phenomena, but quietly, gently. We mustn't expect dramatic occurrences or a loud voice in our ear. Rather, the Lord will speak to us quietly in our thoughts as we interact with him as we read his word or as we pray to him. Or he will speak to us through our conscience as he stirs us by his spirit. Or he'll speak to us through the sense of peace we have in one context and unease in another context. Be wary of those who are always claiming to have very dramatic experiences of God, seeing visions, hearing voices, witnessing miracles. That is not the Lord's normal modus operandi, certainly not in our age, in our culture, in our context. God does speak to his people, but he does so primarily through the gentle whisper. And finally, the Lord's faithfulness and resourcefulness. Isn't it lovely how the Lord had not finished with Elijah? Yes, his role was going to change. He's now going to anoint and train up his successor. But Elijah is not for the scrapyard. He's not for the, the knacker's yard. There is still work for Elijah to do. Even if he had become deflated and lost his focus, even if he had experienced burnout, there was restoration. And there's always restoration on offer for the Lord's people. 
if we feel burnt out at times, if we've maybe failed the Lord dramatically at times, there's always the offer of restoration. The Lord was faithful to his servant. But note also the Lord's resourcefulness. Yahweh wasn't limited to using his own people like Elijah and Elisha. No, he could also employ Hazael, the king of Aram, and the enemy of Israel. He was an enemy of Israel, but the Lord could use him to accomplish his purposes. Likewise, he could use Jehu, another who would prove to be one of Israel's evil monarchs to execute his judgment. And what we see here is that our God is always faithful to his people. He will never leave nor forsake us, but he is never dependent upon us for the accomplishment of his purposes. It's only by his grace that God chooses to use you or use me in his service. We are faltering servants. And in our service for him, we must never think that somehow I am indispensable or that I am doing God a bit of a favor here to help him out. God can use whoever and whatever he wants to accomplish his purposes. And it's purely by grace that he chooses to ever use us. And on that note, I'll leave it for. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.